Well, today, actually, as we move toward Easter, um, this works out perfect. We're going to get back into Romans now that we're able to gather again. I took a break from Romans in the middle of the summer. I mean, right as we um, had all of the kind of upheaval, we weren't able to gather at all. On top of that, we went into just all of the kind of racial tension and the rioting and protest. Um, we just realized like Romans is such a doctrinally dense book that there was a little bit of a disconnect for people trying to watch it at home. And, uh, and so we, uh, we decided to, hey, let's take a break and kind of speak to what's happening and what are messages right now that are going to help the community as we're apart um, through that season. But Door of Hope, we're, we're going to do topical series occasionally, but we want to be a people that continue to study the Word of God and allow God's Word to speak to us where we're at. And it's really awesome. We're going to start in Romans 6. We left off at the end of chapter 5 um, when we were last in it, which is in July. Um, and we're going to begin chapter 6 today, and it actually lines up perfectly uh, with Easter because we're going to be talking about uh, this beautiful reality that we call sanctification. You know, the Apostle Paul up to this point has been establishing the assurance that we have when we place our trust in the complete work of Jesus, that our salvation is not based upon what we do for God, but it is based upon what God has done for us uh, in Christ. This is why we always like to say that the, the gospel is down to earth, uh, is, that, is that religion is always human attempts to climb a ladder toward divinity, to prove their worthiness of God's salvation. But the salvation that comes to us through Jesus Christ declares over us, first of all, our impotence, the reality that sin has blinded us, that we were once dead in our sins and trespasses. A dead person isn't really capable of doing much. Uh, and so what are we told is that God sent his only son and Jesus said in the beginning of John chapter one he he makes this powerful statement in which he says you will see greater things than this for you will see angels ascending and descending upon the son of man and what he's referencing is that picture that we have in Genesis in which Jacob um, is given a vision by which he sees a ladder from earth to heaven and their angels ascending and descending upon the ladder. And then God is at the top of the ladder and proclaims a covenantal promise over, over Jacob. And, and that promise really is looking all the way forward to the salvation of the world through Jesus. That God's promise to Jacob and his ancestors was that through that line would come the Messiah. And Jesus says, listen, the ladder that was impossible for humanity to, to climb, that ladder actually is me. And so it is for us that the symbol of Christianity is never a ladder. It's not steps toward perfection. But we work from perfection, which is Christ in us, the hope of glory. In other words, our symbol is a cross, and the cross is not something you climb, it's something you die on. And I think that this is really important as we begin to move into what is the essence of sanctification. If justification is a right standing before God because of what Christ has done for us on our behalf, it's us who are guilty sinners who Jesus stands in the gap and says, I take their guilt upon myself and my innocence is now placed on them. I will pay the price of their guilt so that they can have my innocence. 
And this is what it means to be in Christ. If anyone is in Christ, the old has gone and the new has come. But how do we live the sanctified life? Because I think Martin Luther said it best when he said, God saved me from sin, but how come he didn't save me from sinning? And I think that that is the great um, question that lies before us. I think one of the great misunderstandings of the gospel is that, is, is that we often view forgiveness as the end rather than the means to an end. That we want Jesus to forgive us because we can't live any longer with our guilt, but we have forgotten that Jesus has forgiven us because he is not content to live without us. That forgiveness is the byproduct of a God who is not content to exist without you. That he has forgiven you because he desires to be with you. And that the end result is not to rid you of your guilt, but the end result should be so that you can have intimacy once again with the living God who created you for his pleasure. And I think that this is, this is something that's problematic because in, in this is the rub, that we desire a clear conscience, but Jesus desires us. And it's hard to admit that we despise anything that threatens our autonomy. And Jesus despises anything that robs him of us. And so often we want Jesus to forgive us, but we want him to leave alone the root problem and the essence of what sin is, which is our desire to be our own gods. And this is where I think so many Christians live frustrated lives. They have just enough faith to, for Jesus to get them out of prison, but they don't have enough faith to get into the promised land. So they spend their entire Christian lives wandering in the wilderness. And I believe in the words of, of uh, Alan Redpath, who said that the vast majority of Christians live with this motto written over their heads, save soul wasted life. And we don't want to be the people that enter into the kingdom of God uh, in, that we find in 1 Corinthians 3, where it says that our works will be tested by fire and that some, the works will burn up. But it says their souls will be saved as ones who have barely escaped the flames. And this shows the possibility of salvation uh, where a person has experienced the real saving reality of Jesus, but they've never entered into the victorious life. They thought that heaven was a future thing rather than the reality that what makes heaven heaven is Jesus's presence there. And so for us who are followers of Christ, we are called to enjoy heaven on the way to heaven which is means that we have Christ in us. It's what it means to be born again. It's not that you're not gonna deal with doubts. It doesn't mean that you're not gonna deal with difficulties. It doesn't mean that you're not gonna deal with sin. But sin itself died with Jesus on the cross. And so the sins that plague us is our forgetting what our standing is in Christ. The only safe place for the believer is to abide in Christ, which means to remain in him and with him. And that's why I like to say that Jesus isn't looking for, our sanctification is not us becoming more morally upright, although that is an, that is an outworking of it. The primary reality is, is that we become a people who daily recognize that it is no longer I who lives, but Christ who lives in me. And this is what I like to call the good death. And honestly, it was the key to Luis Palau's success 
as a global evangelist who went to be with the Lord last week at 87 years old after literally sharing the gospel with millions of people and seeing millions of people give their lives to Christ. A man who at the youngest age began to, began to share the gospel as a teenager on the streets who Billy Graham uh, uh, became close friends with and he shared, I was just talking with his wife last night, Pat, and she was just like talking about the different presidents of the United States that they've had the privilege of being friends with and it was so casual. I was like, wait a minute, you, you know who? And she was like, she's like, George W., he was a good man. He, he, he loved Jesus. <laughs> like just going through these lists. That time that Louis shared the gospel with the Queen of England, like who does that? Uh, it's just this little poor man from Buenos Aires who just got on fire for Jesus and he lived this life that said, I will live every day surrendered to the reality of Jesus. I know what I am apart from him, nothing. And therefore I give him everything. And what I found is that Luis's holiness didn't flow out of his attempts to be moral. It just flowed out of his attempts to live with a constant awareness that he belonged to Jesus. And I think that that is the key to the victorious Christian life is that Jesus has saved you and forgiven you so that you can be with him. And if we don't practice his presence, we're gonna live frustrated lives. So the question that we have to ask is why do we not understand that his mastery over our lives is where our freedom actually really comes from? So let's look at some of these passages here. I want to just begin with the, this, these two verses here in Galatians um, 2, verse 20, and Colossians 1, 27. This sets up really the theme of what Paul is digging into in Romans 6, 1 through 4. The first one, Galatians 2, 20, I have been crucified with Christ. In other words, Paul is saying that old nature, that old man, it was, it, he died and was buried with Jesus. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. So let me just ask you a question right there. When Paul makes a statement like that, because this is one of the false ideas that we have as Christians or even those that view Christianity from the outside, is this idea that you are, it's all about dying to self, which means that it's about losing yourself, no longer being a unique individual, that it's about becoming just a puppet or um, an empty shell of a human being. Is that what you're saying is the key to freedom? But that's not what it means to be crucified with Christ. And it's not what it means when Paul says, no longer I who lives, but Christ who lives in me. What he is saying is that the uniqueness of our temperament, our personhood, that God made each one of us in a very particular way. And the truth of who we are meant to be doesn't come out until we die to the lie of what he never intended us to be. And so that autonomy that we often grab a hold of, this right, this idea that I have the right to define for myself what is right and wrong, which is the essence of our, our first parent's sin in the garden, is that, is that we begin to live lies and believe lies about God, about others, and about ourselves. And the restoration of our uniqueness actually becoming the various members of the body of Christ flows out of that total surrender to Jesus. And so when our lives become infused with the spirit of God, the spirit of God begins to actually reveal who we really are and what we are meant to be. You know, I, 
never would have chosen to be a pastor or even a worship leader for that matter. Those things flowed, those desires and that, and that hunger flowed out of entering into a right relationship with Jesus is that he began to change my desires. And, he, and what he did is he took the things that I always loved, but they now became connected to him. And in doing that, there was almost like a rewiring of my heart and my mind. And I began to realize that all the things that I thought I wanted were not actually the things that I wanted. They were just connected to a longing that only God could satisfy. And that's why all of those other things never actually satisfied me. That's why it didn't matter how much success I got or how much praise I got for my songwriting, that none of it, none of it mattered. And it was even more horrible when it failed because I thought this is, this is the only thing that brings meaning to my life. And then when it didn't do well, it was like, what does my life even mean? And Jesus showed me that's the problem is that the moment you set your eyes upon temporal things, things that cannot bring ultimate satisfaction because even if I had achieved the fame that I wanted, we see the fickleness of fame. Isn't it amazing that people can be the biggest celebrities in the world and be literally forgotten now within a couple years? Music is that way. I mean, music that you can have a massive hit single and then all of a sudden, you know, five years later, your only option is playing the casino circuit, which is bands that play at casinos. That's the end of the game right there. You get money for it, but it's not cool. <laughs> so I think that this is, it's like the theme of casinos is yesterday stars today. And I, I think that this is, <laughs> you know, the, but that's the reality is all those things are so temporal and yet it's the things, you know what the number one desire of young people today is? The number one occupation uh, when surveyed, I just, uh, in watching that documentary, Fake Famous, was to be a social media influencer that's the number one ambition of young people. How fleeting. And this is why we need to understand that it is Christ in us that actually helps us become what we're actually meant to be. We don't need to fabricate anything. We can actually begin to find rest. And this is why Paul says, and the life by which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. So he, he recognizes that there's still this reality called sinful flesh that's at play. And that is going to continue to be a reality. It's a civil war within, which is what we'll get into in chapter seven of Romans. But as long as I am continuing to present myself each day as a living sacrifice and give the Holy Spirit reign in my body, that I'm able to live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And there is the key is that the motivation for the victorious Christian life is the motivation that comes from knowing in the depth of your being that on your worst day, Jesus is crazy about you. That's why I say it every week because I think one of the hardest things for Christians to truly believe, for people to believe, is that they're actually loved. And that love is not contingent upon their performance. It's contingent upon God's performance on their behalf. I love what he goes on to say in Colossians 1.27. He says, to them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. This is the mystery that should be the magnetism that draws the world to Jesus, is that we should be living in such a way that Christ's presence in our lives becomes supernaturally recognized. 
It's that X factor that every believer should have. And it is manifested when we recognize that we are here still as followers of Jesus. The reason he doesn't save us and, and bring us immediately into his presence is because he has chosen to utilize fallen men and women like myself and you to bring forth his kingdom on this earth to be the very conduits by which he continues to accomplish his great rescue plan. And the theme of the text today is about recognizing that our justification is meant to move us toward a sanctification, which is a life by which Jesus becomes evident in and through us as individuals as well as a community. And it's really about moving from our our position in Christ to our possession of his spirit indwelling us, filling us, and working through us. And so I'm hoping that what we can do is, is really kind of explore this idea because I think a lot of people get confused. And what Paul is going to address is what we often call antinomianism, which is the dangers of saying, well, since I am saved by grace and there is nothing I can do to add to what God has already done for us in Jesus, then does it even matter if I continue to live a duplicitous life? Because, hey, my position is secure in Jesus. And what I like to say is that may be true if indeed you are actually saved. And one can grieve the Holy Spirit. We're told, that, we're told that in Scripture. So if it wasn't possible to continue to be stupid as a follower of Jesus, we wouldn't be told that it's possible to grieve the Holy Spirit who's within us. It also says that we can misuse our freedom. So I do not believe, there are some who believe that the person who is saved um, will inevitably... Um, become sanctified with or without their, with, without their help. In other words, this idea that, you know, it doesn't matter what you do because Jesus is going to have his way with you. And, you know, if you were truly saved, you would be a holy person. You would stop sinning. But that's not the reality. And I would argue that the person who is set free by the gospel of Jesus experiences a freedom and freedom always brings responsibility it is possible to misuse that freedom so I'm actually probably a little more Lutheran in my ideology that's that was Luther's thing is like you have no ability to save yourself in that regard I'm very reformed but where I part ways with some of my more extremely reformed brothers is that they refer to grace in an efficacious way that is, argues that, you know, it's, grace is just going to have its way in your life and you're going to become better and better and better. I've walked too, I watched too many legitimate Christians walk away from their salvation. I've seen too many pastors blow up their ministries. The fact is, is that there's only one way to God, which means there's a thousand ways to fall. And the person who has been set free now has a responsibility to not utilize that freedom as the scripture itself declares to serve the flesh, but utilize that freedom to serve Christ. So let's look at these four verses. We're gonna go through them pretty quickly. The first one is this, in Romans 6, chapter one and two, it says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? And he says, by no means, how can we who died to sin continue to live in it? So what, what, is, this, what is, this, is this passage saying? 
Because the popular view is this, when we die, our five senses will cease to operate. We will no longer be able to touch, taste, see, smell, or hear. We will lose all ability to feel or to respond to external stimuli. Just so it is argued, to die to sin means to become insensitive to it. But I believe that's a false view. And what Paul is saying is, is he's already been accused once by declaring the gospel because people will always misunderstand the gospel. We live in a society that actually does not value things that are free. Uh, we, we're, we're so proud. We don't like the idea of like, hey, I don't need help from anyone. I mean, this is why the gospel is so offensive because it's, it's saying to the world, the offensive aspect of the gospel is, no, you actually, you actually suck. Like you are really a horrible person. And this is what the gospel declares over humanity is, it, is that the, what's wrong with the world is humanity. <laughs> that the greatest problems that we will ever face as followers of God, whether you're not saved or saved, like still the greatest enemy you will ever face is yourself. When, when the London Times posted the great question, what is wrong with the world? Chesterton, G.K. Chesterton, the great English thinker, sent in the shortest response, dear sirs, I am. Which means he understood the essence of the Christian faith, which is, is that God wouldn't have sent his son to die for sins unless sin was a real problem that kept people from him. And Chesterton even said the greatest argument against Christianity or the, the greatest argument against Christianity is Christians. But he said the greatest argument for Christianity is sin, which is in essence saying because we are sinful, people will often accuse us of being hypocrites around our faith. And that's why I would argue what Paul is saying here is not for us to pretend to live the ideal. And this is what has gone wrong in the American church again and again. I believe it is the essence of what went wrong. My personal, and we can't know because this person is past, but as we continue to wrestle with the, with the outcome of RZIM Ministries and the fall of Ravi Zacharias and all the information that's come out about his, his, uh, the sexual scandals and the abuse of these young women and using his spiritual authority to manipulate, which is a heartbreaking thing for a guy that was so respected within the evangelical community. The only thing I can come up with is that Ravi lived in a way that so many within Christian leadership, especially in the West live, which is the idea that what I have to present to my listeners is the perfect ideal. I need to live before them like I have arrived. And in doing so, I will be able to lead them toward that ideal. We present the ideal, even though we're not capable of living it, um, and, and, and thinking that's going to be what's attractive to people. But what it actually does is it creates duplicity. Because the person who recognizes what Jesus has done for them, the fact that he has conquered sin and death in the dominions of darkness means that death has lost its sting for us and that sin has no power over our lives as long as we are continually willing to speak it out. This is why confession is the centerpiece of our liberation. Unconfessed sin hides God from us. 
and causes us to live duplicitous lives. Confess sin becomes actually the place where Jesus meets with us. Do we recognize that? That's why, have you ever had that moment, the catharsis of confessing sin, and you feel this unbelievable freedom, this weight that comes, like you just, you came clean. And, and to know that you are forgiven, and to experience the love of God, to know. I, I had this experience when I went to um, uh, Holy Trinity Brompton, and I was just feeling so much weight. I felt like I had just been failing door of hope, failing as a husband, failing as a father. I was under tremendous stress. I was pretty emotionally unavailable for my wife, for my kids, for the staff. And I just like, I can't do this anymore. But I wasn't really sharing it with anyone. And I go to this church and I walk in and they, they say, hey, a lot of you pastors here are really exhausted and we want to take some time and just pray for you. And they just have a really beautiful way that they pray there I've, we could learn a lot from them is there's a there's just an, a there's a readiness and awareness of God's presence in that place that you feel it when you walk in and I think it's because it's a place where the people come expecting to experience God and as the music started and it wasn't even like the style of worship I liked and I backed up against the wall I'm like I'm not going forward and before I knew it I was just like walking forward and I'm like what's happening and I have no control of my legs and then I get to the front of the stage and I'm just there and and all of a sudden I just feel my chest just begin to heave and I start crying and I don't know what's wrong with me and I feel I, I feel this hand on my shoulder and I just begin to weep and, and I just felt this this weight and I just began to speak under my breath like Lord I'm so tired and I'm so sorry and what I heard kind of impressed upon my heart is Josh it's okay I love you I've got you I just want you to recognize your need like just speak it out and it was like, then I felt really freaked out because I'm, like I say, I'm charismatic with a seatbelt. Like I believe in all of the gifts, but I'm kind of scared of them when they happen, okay? And so I'm like, I'm like, what is happening? I think I'm going crazy right now. And I, and I turn around to see who has their hand on my shoulder and there's no one there. And then I really freaked out and I'm like, <laughs> like just start sobbing, like having a seizure in the middle of this, in the middle of the room. And my friend, my friend, um, Dane Sanders, who, uh, used to be a professor at Westmont, lives in California, now works for Alpha, saw me and he comes over and he puts his hand on my chest and he goes, what's wrong? What's going on? And then I'm like, I'm so tired. I can't be a pastor anymore. I don't want to do it. <laughs> He's like, hey buddy, it's okay. Just speak it out. And I spoke it out. And all of a sudden I felt that flood, that, cover, that covering of just Jesus's grace for it is the kindness of God that leads us to repentance and what I found is that my confession of me trying to run a church in my own strength became immediately the place where I felt Jesus's strength undergird me and say you have this because I have you and it's not about you it's about me so just don't forget that and it's like I now have that experience as a reminder when I start feeling that weight. And every time we confess our brokenness to God, I find that it frees us a little bit more. It frees us and it begins that sanctification process. People are constantly asking, what does it mean to progress in Jesus? And we come up with all sorts of programs, discipleship programs, how to make you better readers of the Bible, how to make you, you know, you've got to memorize scripture. We need to become biblically literate. All those things are true. 
But we have to keep that. Once again, those are means to an end. The Bible is not the end in itself. The Bible is not the third person in the Trinity. It is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The scripture is the roadmap that continually points us to the living word, Jesus himself. And we need to remember that when we're reading the scriptures and when we're coming together as a church is that what we really are coming to do is to gather around the living Christ. Because here we say, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? The only reason that we would continue in sin without confession is because we don't understand grace. Because grace compels us to live differently. Because when one realizes that there is literally nothing you can do to change God's love for you, and that what he is looking for is not perfection from you, but total reliance upon him. That's why I say Jesus doesn't want your confession. When when we confess, he's not like asking you for you to give him, you know, your piece of brokenness. Because he recognizes that whatever you think you know is causing brokenness in your life, that's just one piece of a million pieces you're not even aware of. And that's why he says, just give me your whole self. That's what I told my father. My dad's like, I don't want to put faith in Jesus because he's going to, because I don't want to give up smoking. That's what he said to me. I'm like, really? You'd like, you, you don't want to give up smoking? I'm like, dad, He's like, and I don't want to give up, I'm not, I don't want to give up booze. And I'm like, Jesus, I don't even know if he would ask you to stop drinking. I think that might kill you. I don't think he's even worried about that because you've already, you've knocked yourself out, buddy. Like, that's not going to be the problem. The question is, is what are you going to do with Jesus, period? And what he wants is not your smoking or your alcohol. He wants you. Everything that that comes with, he wants all of it. And all he's asking you, dad, is are you willing to let him be responsible for you? And he's like, I need to think about that. (laughs) Well, he's thought about it. And now my dad prays. uh, And I mean, I don't know if he calls him Jesus very often, but he does call him the big fella. And I'm just going to keep trusting that the Lord is moving him (laughs) toward himself. And I think that that's the thing is God knows what he's dealing with and he wants to meet you where you're at. What he's asking of you is not, you can't move any further until you overcome this sin, small s sin, because sin, let me just define it for you, is not the little things you do wrong. Sin is your rebellion against God's rule. It's your rejection of his grace. And the outcome of rejecting his grace and rebelling against his rule is you do lots of things wrong. That's the outcome. That's why Paul spends so much time in Romans 1 talking about the wrath of God. He says, you want to know how the wrath of God has played out in our lives? It's not God striking us down with lightning. It's God saying, fine, you want to be your own God? Have it your way. Do what you want. It says, therefore, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are unfitting. And I think that we need to understand this in the culture in which we live, what the world needs to see from us uh, is is that we recognize that the death to sin is not referring to Uh, the, the power of sin in the world or even in our lives, but it's referring to the freedom 
that we have from guilt because we are a people that know how to regularly confess our brokenness and it, and it helps us recognize that without Jesus, we can't do anything. You guys, we're living in a tumultuous time. Once again, we have a new wave of violence that has struck our nation. I think it's important for us to remember the families of those that were killed in the shootings uh, in Georgia. I think eight, it's eight women, right, that were, that were shot and killed. Six of them Asian. Questions around whether or not it was, a, uh, it was racially motivated, I would argue it's kind of hard to say that it wasn't. Uh, he tries to say that it isn't, but it doesn't matter what the motivation was. It was evil. And it's the outcome of a sinful humanity. And we need to realize that the solutions to these problems because we are right now in the middle of a political war around how to fix sin problems. And I tell you right now that the government is not the place that will give us the solution, the churches. And we have to believe that. Because the world will turn just as quickly on the church. And, and, and we're always looking for scapegoats. We're gonna say the problem is white racists or the problem is, you know, the right, or the problem is the left. And those battles, that's not our battle. Our battle is against principalities of darkness and the rulers of this age and the influence that sin has on our lives and the ways that we all play the victim and the victimizer almost every day. And this is what I find so deeply troubling about the culture in which we live is that there is a continual cry for justice, but there is no understanding of grace. There is no understanding of mercy. And the kind of justice that the world is driving for and, and clamoring for is a kind of justice that brings bitterness rather than healing. And I would argue that we have the solution by which we can bring healing because it is Christ in us, the hope of glory, who feels the pain of those families that just lost their girls, who understands the depth of our brokenness. And he says, not only did I die for those girls whose lives were taken from them, but I actually died for the shooter who shot them. And that is an upside down thing that our world cannot understand. And this is why we need to understand as we move forward as a community of healing is that we know how broken we are. We know what we are capable of because I know what Jesus has saved me from. I know the biased thoughts that I have had toward people. I know the, the, the vitriol that I have felt when I dislike what someone says or thinks. I know the ways that I can be snarky and I see the ways that I violate the Holy Spirit all the time, which is why I have to continually every day say, Jesus, forgive me. Help me, I am yours. In other words, my problems, I'm willing to let them be your problem. Sort me out. You sort me out. Palau, Luis, taught me this, is that the key to his holiness was just a daily surrender to Jesus, recognizing that without Christ, I am nothing. I'm just a sinful man, but in Jesus, I have the ability to be a conduit of his grace. This is what it means when we who have died to sin, now live in the power of the Spirit. And this is why he goes on to say this. This is the good death. Death in Christ moves us 
to becoming alive in Christ. Do you know that all of us who have been baptized, that word baptism literally means immersion into. We have been baptized into Christ Jesus. We're baptized into his death. This is why even if you've never been baptized, one of the, one of the few sacraments that Jesus actually commands of, of believers, and we'll be doing baptisms not long after Easter, the whole purpose of baptism is a public demonstration, a visible witness of the supernatural transformation that we've experienced. In other words, I have died with Christ. We baptized, submerged in the water represents your death and then the resurrection life. The good death is that we die to different areas of our lives that have hold on us. We die to our innocence. The death of innocence is the birth of forgiveness. The moment I recognize I'm not innocent is the moment I have the potential of receiving forgiveness. I can't be forgiven if I don't recognize that I'm guilty. The death of control is actually the birth of freedom. The moment that I recognize that every time I try to take control of my life, I actually become enslaved to sin and the only one I want to be enslaved to is Jesus because he's the only one who can actually bring freedom. The death to my dreams actually becomes the moment that I am resurrected into the promises of God so that he can reshape my vision of the world and my place in it. So he says, do you not know that all of you have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. There is the picture. The picture that we see in the scripture that details this so well is the children of Israel being set free from captivity. Moses leads the children of Israel out of their slavery in Egypt. And when they cross the Red Sea, it is a powerful moment by which God delivers them from those that were oppressing his people. And he brings destruction upon the oppressor. And I would argue that Pharaoh even is like a type of, of the enemy of God, the devil himself. And we see this unbelievable deliverance, but they get into the wilderness and what happens is that they begin to look back on their previous lives and they begin to complain about where God has led them. And they're like, we would have been better off if we would have stayed slaves. They, they complain about, he gives them heavenly food, manna to eat. And I, figure, I picture manna as a picture of scripture. It's like, I, how often? It's like, God has given us a roadmap to understand his heart, to know him. And we complain about it. It's too big. It's too, it's too boring. Jesus says, I'm the bread of life. And we're like, I don't like plain bread. I want something on my sandwich. And, and so we're constantly complaining about these beautiful gifts that God gives us because we think we know better than God what will make us happy. And so like the children of Israel in the wilderness, we continually grumble against God trying to lead us into real hope, real promise. And the promised land is not a picture of the future reality of heaven. The promised land is, the, is a picture of the victorious life of Christ right now. Is that the reason Joshua and Caleb were able to go into the promised land with an entirely new generation is because they were the ones that showed us what the victorious life looks like. They're not perfect. They're just surrendered, totally surrendered, totally sold out to God. We are worshipers of God. For better or for worse, God, do with me what you want. And that led them into a place of promise. And keep in mind, that's the promised land where all the real battles happen. 
We can't, Door of Hope, expect to enter into the victorious Christian life without also expecting to enter into some serious battles. And let me just tell you, if this church is not making a difference in the city, that means that we are a community that is wandering in the wilderness. And maybe it's because we haven't confessed our brokenness to Christ. We've got just enough salvation to get us out of hell to get us into heaven, but we don't have enough faith to live victoriously as his witness right now in this place. This is the picture that I believe Paul is painting for us and shows us the difference between casual faith and a radical life-transforming reality by which I live my life for Christ Jesus. Portland is a hard city to live out the life of Jesus, but I would also argue it's a place where people are far more open to the gospel than you think. And many people say they're not open to it, but I would ask you before you say that, have you really tried? Have you really said, Jesus, I belong to you and every person I come in contact with, my prayer is that you would give me a singular vision. This was Luis Palau's great gift, his ability to see every person, whether it was the queen of England or the server at Besaws while we were eating breakfast with a singular eye, someone Jesus loves. And because of his ability to live so fully for others, that is the key to not living a self-focused, self-destructive life. I am best when I am busiest for Jesus. I am at my worst when I have too much time to navel gaze. This is why COVID has been really, really problematic, especially if you're a creative type like myself. I'm like, my wife has to say, honey, you should be working on your book. What are you doing? I'm writing another electronic dance song that no one will ever hear. And uh, it's true, COVID has created some, in another life I would have been an epic DJ. Um, and I'm just up there dancing my stress away when there's a whole world that's lost that needs to hear the gospel. And I'm nothing wrong with electronic music, we'll keep making that, but it has to have its proper context <laughs> and space. Nothing should be a priority over being a witness to Jesus. And that is where I am the safest is when I am bound to you rather than bound to my own internal thought process. May we live outwardly for Christ. May we discover that we have died to sin. The guilt and the shame that comes with sin means that we now have the freedom to confess it because Jesus has dealt with it. And when we confess it, that becomes the place where we meet the living Christ who not only is with us and for us, but he is within us wanting to work through us. This is the gospel. Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for the transforming reality of the gospel. My prayer right now is just that we at Door of Hope would be a church that recognizes that our power is not wrapped up in our intellectual capacity or our natural gifts or talents, but our power is wrapped up in our willingness to humble ourselves before you, our King, and recognize our brokenness apart from you. Our sainthood is wrapped up in recognizing that we are sinners who have been saved by grace. And so Jesus, we confess to you, we confess to one another our brokenness because we know that this is the place where you meet us. Unconfessed sin, Lord, hides you from our consciousness. A confession of our rebellious spirits is actually what frees us from that rebellion and brings you into view. 
And so I pray right now, just as I experienced the presence of your Holy Spirit in London, I pray for Door of Hope. I pray for this community that we would be a people that just cry out to you and just ask, Lord, would you move in, in, in our lives? Would you move in us? And if you don't know Jesus today, I just would remind you that you're, the gospel is about God's work on your behalf, that Jesus is the son of God. He is the God man and he entered into the human dilemma and he took upon himself human brokenness and sin into his very being and he dealt with it once and for all upon the cross of Calvary. And we are told that on the third day he rose from the dead because death could not keep him. When he cried out to the father, it is finished. It meant that sin and death and the dominions of darkness had been destroyed. And Lord, your word says that whoever confesses with their lips that Jesus is Lord and believes in their heart that God raised him from the dead shall be saved. We need to confess those words every day because we have been saved, but we are being saved and we shall be saved. So let's together as a church simply speak those words out. Jesus is Lord. Say that with me. Jesus is Lord. Lord Jesus, to say you are Lord means that we are not. To say you are Lord means to say my kingdom go and your kingdom come. To say you are Lord is to recognize that you are the savior of the world and the rightful, the rightful ruler of this world that is under the sway of the wicked. When we do pray right now for the families that have been affected by this terrible act of evil and violence, and we pray for comfort, we do pray for peace um, in our nation, I pray that we as a community of faith would be a place that does not fall into a landscape of, of hatred and finger pointing, but instead that we would be conduits of your grace, viewing all people with a common vision that they are people made in your image, giving all people the dignity that they deserve as image bearers of you. And so Lord Jesus, I pray that Door of Place would be a place of healing I pray that it would be a place of diversity. I pray that it would be a place that is safe for a community like Portland to experience your radical, unsafe gospel because it turns our lives upside down. So Jesus, we confess we need you. Without you, we can do nothing. It's in your name we pray, amen.